0: Lecture 14, Star Formation, Astronomy 162, given on Tuesday, January 24th, 2006, in 1008 Evans Laboratory. We'll start in just a moment. All right, now, we've already finished discussing all the physics that we need to make stars. And now it's time to actually put all those pieces together and start telling the story of stellar structure and evolution. In particular, we're going to be, we've already sort of got most of the questions of how do stars work answered. So we've answered that second class of questions. Now we move on to the third and most interesting part. How do stars evolve? How do stars form? How do they live out their lives? And how do they die? Now I'm going to be using the word evolution here a lot. Unfortunately, the word evolution has come to mean a biological context to just about everybody because the biologists use it to mention the way in which speciation occurs over time through natural, process of natural selection. When we use evolution in astrophysics, I'm not stating that stars are living beings that evolve and change as if they're a species of stars. I'm going to use the word evolution in its original sense of, a la- of the original Latin root, meaning an unrolling or an unfolding, the process by which the star sort of goes through various stages of existence. Now, because We we are humans love our metaphors in our language. We're going to use the metaphorical speaking of the life cycle of a star, as if a star was a living being. But no one believes the star is a living being. So I'm going to talk about the birth, life, and death of stars. It's just simply a very familiar intuitive metaphor that actually does get a lot of sense across, and so I'm going to stick with it. We're going to begin our story of stellar structure and evolution with the evolution portions by beginning at the very beginning with star formation. Because it follows a natural progression all the way through the life cycle of star to, and next week, we talk about star death. The key ideas today is look at what the raw materials of star formation are. They're going to be giant molecular clouds, very dense clouds of gas that live in interstellar space. A star will begin to form through a series of very distinct phases. The first of these phases is that cloud begins to collapse and fragment into sort of stellar-sized clumps, out of these stellar-sized clumps, you begin the formation of what are called protostars. They are not yet stars, but they are objects which eventually will achieve hydrostatic equilibrium. And the onset of hydrostatic equilibrium is an important phase in the, in the formation of a star. It's the phase in which the f- main energy mechanism at play is the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism. It's, and we're going to have this stage ruled by a particular timescale. It happens at a certain speed called, not surprisingly, the Kelvin-Helmholtz timescale. This is then followed by a pre-main sequence phase in which the star grows successively hotter in its core as it contracts under the kelvin helmholtz mechanism until it reaches a temperature of about 10 million degrees where it can begin the ignition of hydrogen fusion. And when it ignites hydrogen fusion, it begins to have a source of energy that can make up for its energy losses. And it eventually reaches a state of thermal equilibrium in which now the energy generation and energy transport to the surface to be radiated come into balance. Once I have hydrostatic equilibrium and thermal equilibrium, I have a star. Now, there are two natural consequences that come out of the star formation process that define a, in, of establishing both hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium, give us a natural scaling for the minimum and maximum masses the stars can have. We're going to find that you can't have a star of any size. You couldn't, for example, turn Jupiter, which is a large gas bag, into a star nor could you likely have things like thousand or million solar mass stars. There are limiting factors involved, and we'll see those at the end. Now, our starting point, of course, is always we'd really like to know about our own sun. We'd like to know this question of origins is very important in the sciences. Where do things come from? If we look at the sun today, what I can conclude very simply is that the sun is old and in equilibrium. It is in two states of equilibrium. The first of these is that it is in hydrostatic equilibrium. Internal pressure is exactly balanced by gravity in its interior. The sun neither expands nor contracts. The second equilibrium is that the sun is essentially in thermal equilibrium at any given instant. That is to say that the energy transport from the core to the surface exactly is balanced by the amount of energy generation going on the core. Another way of putting this is that the amount of energy being generated in the core exactly makes up for the loss of energy at the surface due to the fact that the sun shines. The sun shines because it is hot. It doesn't need nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion just acts to keep it hot for about 10 billion years, as we've seen before. If it didn't have nuclear fusion, it would be shining by kelvin helmholtz mechanism. So the question at hand is not... We've already understood, we've already addressed this question of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium What we want to address today is how did the Sun get this way? How did it achieve this state of hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium? Well, it turns out that there are two steps to stardom. Now, I'm going to be right up front. I've told you at the beginning of this class that we're going to be dealing with material in this class that we know extremely well and other material that we don't know as well as we'd like because those are at the frontiers of our knowledge. I will be perfectly honest with you that we understand the basic physical outlines of star formation very well, and that's the story I'm going to unfold today. But in the details of star formation, as confronted by observations, we have a lot of work to do. So a lot of the things I'm going to be telling you today are really broad brushstroke outlines. But understand that underneath that, there are still a lot of mysteries. And the reason for some of those mysteries hopefully will become clear as, as the lecture proceeds. We've come to understand over the last two years that you can break down the process of star formation into kind of a two step, two basic steps. There's two basic ends that have to be achieved. The first of these is the star must go from raw material to a state where it establishes hydrostatic equilibrium. We call this the protostar phase. Here, all we're doing is we're trying to establish a balance between pressure and gravity. The second phase is where, once having established the balance between pressure and gravity. You have to move, progress, or if you will, evolve to the point that the object which wants to become a star ignites nuclear fusion in its core and achieves thermal equilibrium. So, remember, to be the sun, you have to be in both hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium, and you achieve them in two different stages. Now, admittedly, what we're seeing really is a continuum of processes from raw gas to formation of star. But by dividing it up into these phases, which are just demarked by whether you, when you first get to hydrostatic equilibrium and then thermal equilibrium, makes both physical and pedagogical sense in how the process will proceed. We call the thermal equilibrium phase the pre main se- sequence phase. And we can actually distinguish objects in space which belong to stars in both of these phases. And we'll look at what the timescales are that govern these phases and what we expect to see in each of these phases as the lecture progresses. So we need to start with raw materials. The raw materials, if we go out and look at the galaxy and we say, where do I see stars forming? The place where I see stars forming is near clouds of gas and dust that fill the space between the stars. We call this the interstellar medium. Your note goes on a bit about the interstellar medium. I carved out that slide just to save a little time. Let's jump ahead to the raw materials. One of the principal components of the interstellar medium, in addition to sort of a general run of diffuse gas which fills most of space, is a small fraction of the mass of the interstellar medium is composed of cold, dense, dark, and dusty, giant molecular clouds. These are clouds of hydrogen in a molecular state, the H2 molecule. Normally, hydrogen in the universe would be found as atomic hydrogen because the conditions in space are not conducive for the existence of molecules. But if I can get a cold enough and dense enough place, the conditions out there are actually conducive to the formation of large quantities of molecular hydrogen, and in these objects, molecular hydrogen is the dominant form of hydrogen. The basic properties of these objects is that the giant molecular clouds earn their name giant. They're very large. They range in sizes from about 10 to 50 parsecs across. Remember that the mean distance between stars in our solar neighborhood is one parsec. That gives you an idea of how immense these clouds are. The total mass contained within a giant molecular cloud, of which a nice picture is shown here on the right, can be up to about 100,000 times the mass of the sun. These things are immense, but there's only a handful of them at uh, at any given time in any region of of the Milky Way galaxy. They're cold, as advertised. The temperature in these clouds is between 10 and 30 degrees Kelvin, so they're very, very cold material, that's why the molecular hydrogen can exist in space, and they're fairly dense. Now, when we talk about things being dense in astronomy, especially in the interstellar medium, 10 to the 5 to 10 to the 6 atoms per cubic centimeter doesn't sound like that qualifies as dense. After all, the air in this room has something like 10 to the 18, 10 10 to the 20, 10 to the 21 atoms per cubic centimeter typical interstellar space is less around the Sun is less than an atom per cubic centimeter of typical density. So these things are dense by comparison to the rest of the interstellar medium. It's actually better than any vacuum I can pull in a chamber anywhere on the Earth. Now, this constitutes the raw material out of which stars form. It has all the pieces we need. It has cold hydrogen and helium gas, mostly hydrogen in the form of hydrogen molecules, It's cold, which means it's nice and compressed, or at least as compressed as you're ever going to get in interstellar space, and there's a lot of it. Typical masses of 10,000, 100,000 solar masses. After all, I'm trying to form things which are of order 0.1 to 10 or 20 solar masses, or 100 solar masses. There's plenty of raw materials here out of which to construct stars. Now, having formed a giant molecular cloud, I want to look at its internal structure, and once again, this interplay between gravity and pressure plays a role right from the very start of a star's life, even before the star is, in fact, even a star. Giant molecular clouds, if I look at them internally, have a temperature. If they have a temperature and density, they have a pressure. That pressure is roughly enough to balance, in round numbers, the gravity of the entire cloud. You've got 100,000 solar masses worth of stuff, but it's spread out over 10 or 50 parsecs. So it's a very low gravity. So it doesn't take much pressure to hold it up. In addition to internal heat, admittedly 10 to 30 Kelvin doesn't sound like heat, but it's enough to produce pressure, there's an additional source of pressure because giant molecular clouds are actually threaded with weak magnetic fields, and magnetic fields can slightly hold up a gas cloud as well. These two forms of pressure combined try to hold it off against gravity, but it's a house of cards. It isn't a very stable situation because the system is so cold. If you just sneeze on it, it will actually cause gravity to get the upper hand. In fact, if gravity gets even the slightest upper hand in a giant molecular cloud, it will overwhelm the pressure in the entire cloud. An entire structure, 10 or 50 parsecs across of 100,000 solar masses, will begin to come unglued. It will begin to actually fall in upon itself due to its own self-gravity. Now, the way you trigger this collapse, there's lots of different ways, and we are not sure which one is the most important, and the reason why we can't determine that is, in fact, all of these play a role in different contexts. For example, two clouds can bump into each other. The bump between them is actually sufficient to cause the clouds to fragment, and we actually see cloud collapse and fragment on the interface between two clouds colliding together. If a nearby massive star explodes as a supernova, that blast wave rolling out through interstellar space can roll over one of these clouds and literally fragment it and cause it to collapse. It just hammer blows it and that gives you enough external pressure to basically hammer it in and it just falls down on itself and collapses. The other thing that can happen is as the molecular cloud passes through a spiral arm in a galaxy, The changes of gas pressure in that spiral arm and its surroundings are thought by some people to be enough to actually trigger the collapse. The cloud suddenly finds itself pushed upon by the surrounding interstellar medium enough that gravity gets the upper hand and it falls in. All of these mechanisms can probably work. Here's one example, in fact, where we can see the shape of it. We have a cold cloud of gas and dust kind of strung along here. And a giant massive star explodes at the end of its life and sends out a shock wave. As that shock wave runs into the cloud, it shoves and compresses it. That cloud then fragments into pieces, and those pieces form into stars. And in fact, this object in the space, a nebula called Hennise 206, is exactly such an object. We see the round ancient bubble of a supernova remnant. We'll learn about those next week. But at the fringes of that, we see a very cold, dense molecular cloud that has been rammed into by this. And inside that cold, dense molecular cloud, these bright spots here are newly formed stars. So this is direct evidence that a supernova blast wave can in fact trigger star formation, triggering the collapse of a giant molecular cloud. There's lots of examples all over the place. Now we take this cloud and we bust it into fragments. Each of these fragments, starting with, If you look at a giant molecular cloud, it's not a smooth cloud like a cloud on Earth. It's clumpy. It's got kind of lumps and bumps all over the place. The typical size of a clump is about a tenth of a parsec. So now we're getting down to sort of reasonable sized things. A tenth of a parsec is 20,000 astronomical units. So Now we're getting down to solar system-ish sizes. And the clumps have masses of a few solar masses. So this is now a clump of stuff which has got the right materials to form a kind of solar mass or bigger star or smaller stars the case may be the highest density clumps have the strongest gravity they're more unstable compared to their pressure than compared to low density regions so the highest density portions of the cloud are going to start collapsing first and fastest So you might start out with kind of a mix of low-density stuff and high-density stuff in the cloud, but once you induce that cloud to begin collapse, the high-density parts literally fall out from from underneath themselves and begin to collapse rapidly. The low-density stuff kind of looks around and says, what? You know, what's going on here? It takes a while for it to hydrodynamically catch up with things, and so the cloud begins to bust into clumps. Before it was kind of clumps all running around with low-density stuff, but all of a sudden the clumps take off and take on a life of their own leaving the low-density stuff behind. So the result of doing one of these things to a cloud, collision of clouds, smacking it with a supernova, running it through a spiral arm, causes the cloud to literally fall apart. And it falls apart into separately collapsing clumps, which we call dense cores. We see these inside of molecular clouds. We can see these regions of high density in contrast to the lower density around them. These cores have masses that are comparable to stars. And so it makes sense that we want to look inside these cores are going to become the sites of star formation. Here's a really pretty picture from the edge of a molecular cloud showing how clumpy the molecular cloud can be. This is a cloud which is in the process of falling apart. We see some very, very small, very, very dense clumps but there's lower density material around that we see them, if you will, suspended inside of. What we're looking at in this picture here, taken from the Hubble Space Telescope, is a beautiful section of one of the sections of these molecular clouds. Here it's being backlit by a bright nebulosity which is being lit up by recently formed very hot stars. So it allows us to see these things in, in sort of silhouetted on the sky. Each of these, in turn, will either be so small that they'll just evaporate away or if they have enough mass about the mass of a star, they will begin to collapse under their own gravity and will eventually themselves become stars. So let's follow one of these clumps, one of these cores. When cores start out, they're relatively low density, even though they're higher density than their surroundings, they're still relatively low density. Starting point of a giant molecular cloud has a density of a few hundred to few thousand grams uh, atoms, atoms per cc. A star has something more like 10 to the 22 atoms or more per cc. So we have to go nearly 10 to the 20 in density from interstellar gas to a star. It's got a long ways to go. Now when the star- chloras start out, they're relatively low density, they're kind of transparent. As a consequent, photons can leak out. So even though they're compressing, as they compress the heat, Radi- heat in the form of radiation, in the form of infrared radiation, can just simply stream out of the cloud. Now yesterday we saw that in a dense star that those photons have to random walk their way nearly a million years to get out from the center of the sun. But the sun is a formed star and very dense. The cores here are practically transparent, which means as you make the heat, you just almost immediately goes away. And so what happens is instead of that heat going into building up internal pressure, it's radiated away because the photons can just stream out of the cloud easily. And so it just keeps collapsing. Pressure sees gravity coming down, but it can't tap enough heat because it can't trap the photons inside to push back very hard. And so the collapse just simply, the bottom just falls out of these things. But that doesn't continue forever because as time goes on, as the bottom is falling out, the density is getting higher. As the density gets higher, these clouds get more and more opaque. It gets harder for the photons to get out, The photons get trapped in the gas and scatter around, giving up their energy to it and heating it. So now you can begin to capture and trap some of that heat inside. That heat turns into pressure and the pressure begins to build up more and more rapidly than it did before. Eventually, you've got this runaway collapse. At some point in the star, usually in the core first, you find a point where the pressure and heat build to the point that the pressure now begins to start to balance gravity. The star still is collapsing under its own weight, but hydrostatic equilibrium now becomes established. So what you find is that inside these growing cores, once you establish hydrostatic equilibrium, the core starts growing faster and faster as fresh material from the outside, which is still thin and transparent, falls down upon you. But deep inside that, you have a small core which is achieving hydrostatic equilibrium, Stuff is falling onto it continuously from the outside. So even though in hydrostatic equilibrium the Kelvin-Helmholtz time makes you want to shrink, you've got fresh material raining on top of you and you, in fact, grow. So by achieving hydrostatic equilibrium, you've now passed to the point that you are beginning to be a proto-star. You're not a star yet, but you've just achieved the first of the stages. You've achieved a state of hydrostatic equilibrium. You've become dense enough and opaque enough that you can trap enough heat that you can become in hydrostatic equilibrium. Here's a movie showing this process of cloud fragmentation. This is a hydrodynamic simulation that the color here codes high density. So as you get yellow to white, you're getting higher and higher density. The cloud fragments in a very turbulent way. These things are not going to be simple, smooth, little spherical cores. We're now going to see this sort of progress. You see a lot of the gas moving around. It's a very turbulent, dusty place. Now the movie is going to zoom in on this very, very dense section here where there's a series of these dense cores collapsing under their own weight, and you immediately see, when you see those white dots, those are protostars in this simulation. Those are places that have achieved hydrostatic equilibrium. This is the formation of a dense star cluster, so these protostars begin to interact with each other's gravity. The center of the star forming region can be very violent. You see there's one star going off, whoops, with its disk moving away. Whoops. Hang on, oh, have to be careful not to have the, have the button there. So it collapses down. You form very, very dense sub-clumps. The low-density stuff is slower behind it, so you see the cloud just fragment, it busts into pieces. As it busts into pieces, you begin to see much more denser cores form. We're gonna readjust the density contrast because now there's nearly three orders of magnitude and density here. We'll follow the evolution forward. There's this dense little core complex in the middle here. We zoom in more and more on this thing, and now we're going to follow the evolution of the dense cores through the formation of protostars in here. And this is the formation of protostars. You'll see, for example, that they tend to be surrounded by rotating disks. They tend to be followed, the material falls down in pancakes, because there's a little bit of rotation. So we're going to follow along here for just a couple minutes, as this dense star cluster. There's a little edge on disk getting blown off there, carrying out with that star. This is just a simulation. A lot of the details are not perfect here. Notice this rather interesting little supermassive little thing going on down here. We're going to actually zoom in on that here in the simulation. This is by an astronomer, theorist named Matthew Bate, who did this beautiful simulation and put it on the web for everyone to grab. The timescale here is only about 250,000 years so far. The entire movie that you're going to see compresses 200,000 years of time, about 260,000 years of time into this movie. So you see that the dense cores fling out little little protostars. The protostars are in hydrostatic equilibrium, Eventually, material rains down upon them, and you form a dense cluster of stars with still the lower density of gas surrounding them. This looks a lot like those pictures of star-forming regions we just saw, where you see the gas out of which the stars formed and the hot stars that are forming within. So what we expect is that the protostar phase is going to be a very short-lived phase. It's a very, very rapid phase of evolution. The typical timescales are only between 10 and 100,000 years. That movie there that we just saw only lasted 260,000 years. That's kind of long, which means most of those things have already formed into protostars. Protostars in this phase are, A, they're in hydrostatic equilibrium, so they've reached one of the first of the two goals to becoming a full-fledged star. They've now got pressure and gravity in balance but they're still deeply embedded inside of their parent clouds of dust and gas. In fact, here's a picture in the visible wavelengths of one of these so-called dense starless cores, but in fact, when we go to infrared wavelengths, which can peer through the dust, look there, shining away, is a bright, hot protostar. Protostars are going to be very hard to see. Now, while these are in hydrostatic equilibrium and still shrouded in a lot of the gas out of which they were born, because the protostar is the dense core at the center of these clumps, they're not yet in thermal equilibrium. They cannot produce enough energy by kelvin helmholtz mechanism to make up for their energy losses, and so they will continue to contract. They will be in hydrostatic equilibrium only instantaneously. Now, there's a combination of things why it's so hard to observe protostars. The first of these is that this is a short-lived phase. You have to catch things just when they're in this phase, so they're going to be kind of hard to see. The other reason they're hard to see is they're buried deep inside of these molecular cloud cores. You have to use infrared technologies to get to the inside, or millimeter wave radio astronomy. And we're only just now getting the kinds of technologies, like the Spitzer Space Telescope here, that work in the infrared that can allow us to peer into these cores. So we're only just now beginning to get a good census of the protostars around us, but the fact that they're short-lived and hard to see means that we're only going to see a handful. Not because stars don't spend time. All stars become protostars, and there are 200 billion stars in the Milky Way. It's just like they don't spend very long in that phase, so we have a hard time catching them. That's going to be an important part of how we see rare objects. It's not just that they are intrinsically rare, because every star is a protostar, but if they don't spend a lot of time there, it's going to be hard to catch them in that phase when we look out into space. Now, protostars, as you could see from that simulation, have disks around them. As the material rains onto the protostar, it has a little rotation to it. Along the poles, there's no centrifugal force. There's no resistance to the fall. And so the gas basically pancakes down along the poles. But along the equator, conservation of angular momentum, which we often refer to as the sensation of a centrifugal force, keeps the equators from collapsing too fast. And so the gas, which may have started out spherical, very quickly forms into a rotating flattened disk. So the result is, if we look around protostars that I can see out in space, almost all of them are accompanied by a rotating flat disk of dust and gas surrounding the equator of the protostar. This is fairly important because This is now the raw materials out of which planetary systems can form around these things. So after the protostar forms, the disk forms around it, pancakes around, but as the protostar begins to pump out more and more energy, this disk begins to clear away. Some of the matter clears away by draining into the protostar and helping the protostar grow in total mass, and other bits are actually blown away by stellar winds. Some bits even begin to form into planets, Jupiter's and Earth's, for example, in the case of our own system. The gas is kind of easy to push away. And in about six million years, most of the gas could be just cleared away. But in addition to the gas, as we see in our own solar system, there's dust and other particulates, rocks, if you will. Rocks do not respond well to being pushed by radiation pressure, and they take a lot longer to clear away. They could take as much as a billion years to clear away. Just like in our own solar system, there was an epoch of heavy bombardment during the first billion years of the solar system's life. That was the leftover rock and crap. The gas had already been blown away long long before. Now if we look out into space, we do in fact see these debris disks, as we call them, around other stars. Here's a couple of beautiful examples from the Hubble Space Telescope around relatively young, sort of billion-year-ish old stars we still see disks of stuff left over from that early pancake form-a-disk protostar phase. The object in the center has long since moved on to become a full-fledged star, but the remnants of its birth materials still remain around for a while, and the Earth, in fact, is leftover materials from the birth of the sun when you really come down to it. So that's the protostar phase. We now need to go from protostar to star. We've achieved hydrostatic equilibrium. Protostars shine because they are hotter than their surroundings. That's why we see them. They need some source of energy to stay hot, but the problem is their central temperature is still too cool. It's still below 10 million degrees Kelvin. They cannot ignite nuclear fusion in their cores. This means that their energy source for a protostar is not nuclear fusion. It shines because it is hot. It stays hot because of the Kelvin-Helmholtz contraction, because of gravitational contraction energy. As the protostar shrinks, it compresses. The compression leads to heating, releasing gravitational energy. About 50% of this heat that's generated goes into photons, which stream away from the protostar and become starlight. The other half of the energy generated by compression goes into internal heating of the protostar's interior. It turns out to be just enough, but not quite enough, to maintain perfect hydrostatic equilibrium. It can't maintain thermal equilibrium because the amount of energy being generated by gravitational energy is not enough to make up for the radiation losses at the star. And so as a consequence, the star will continue to contract. It doesn't achieve thermal equilibrium yet, even though at every instant it's trying its best to reachieve hydrostatic equilibrium through the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism. So we get this kind of 50-50 mix of half of the energy goes into radiation, but it's not quite enough to totally make up for it. There's heating in the core. The heating makes the interior hotter, but it's not hot enough for pressure to exactly get the upper hand and stop contraction because we haven't got an energy source which isn't tied to the gravitational compression. Now, there's a natural time scale associated with this. We've met it before. It's called the Kelvin-Helmholtz time scale. We just implied it the other day talking about the sun. The time scale is found by comparing the source of energy that you have at hand, which is gravitational binding. And you'll remember, hopefully from the first week, that gravitational binding goes like mass squared divided by radius. i drop dropped the factor of g in here because it's just not important to us in this discussion. That energy generation mechanism has to be balanced against energy loss, and the energy loss in this case is the luminosity of the protostar. How much energy it's losing in watts, in ergs per second is to find something called the Kelvin-Helmholtz timescale, which is proportional to the mass squared divided by the radius times the luminosity. This tells me that a very large object with a large mass is going to have a long Kelvin-Helmholtz timescale, but that's going to be balanced by its larger physical size and its larger luminosity. In fact, we can work out what the Kelvin-Helmholtz timescale should be for various stars for a one-solar-mass protostar. For a protostar that became something the size of the sun, the Kelvin-Helmholtz time is 30 million years. We heard that time scale before when we talked about Kelvin-Helmholtz the other day. It turns out for high-mass protostars, even though the Kelvin-Helmholtz time goes like m squared, the luminosity of those objects is so much bigger that it actually compensates for it, and high-mass protostars will collapse very rapidly. They will burn through, if you will. They they will run through their Kelvin-Helmholtz gravitational contraction time very rapidly. A low-mass star has small gravitational binding. It takes a very long time because even though it's got smaller binding energy, its luminosity needs are very small. It doesn't need to generate as much energy as a big star, and so it takes a long time for it to collapse. So this means that there's a natural time scale that tells you how fast the protostar phase will last, because the protostar phase is when you're in hydrostatic equilibrium getting energy by Kelvin-Helmholtz. If you're the size of the sun, you will stay about 30 million years in the protostar phase. If you're a very big star, it will be very rapid. If you're a very small star, it will be very much slower. So let's look at these in turn. For a high mass protostar, the gravitational collapse combination is very rapid. A 30 solar mass protostar, that's something that's on its way to becoming an O star or a B star, is really fast. The Kelvin-Helmholtz timescale is like 10,000 years. So these stars don't spend very much time in this phase. As they collapse, they heat very rapidly. Eventually, the heat in the core rises above 10 million degrees Kelvin. Once the heat in the core gets above 10 million Kelvin, you can ignite hydrogen fusion. At low temperature, when it first starts out, it ignites fusion by proton-proton chain. As proton-proton chain begins to proceed, it can't quite make up all the energy yet, but it can start to heat the core. The core heats very rapidly, plus the additional contraction heating. The temperature rises above 18 million Kelvin, and carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle takes over. You begin to pump a tremendous amount of energy out, first from proton-proton, then from CNO fusion. Eventually... You start making so much fusion energy that the fusion energy output takes over from gravitational poten- gravitational energy. And the star now makes up all of its energy needs from nuclear fusion. The hydrostatic thermostat kicks into gear. We begin transporting that energy out to the surface, and the star very quickly becomes a very hot main sequence O or B star. These stars are really hot. They're 50, 60,000 degrees Kelvin. They're so hot that the ultraviolet radiation pours out from these things into the surrounding cloud. It begins to ionize it and blow it away. So when these stars form, they quickly disrupt all star formation around them. They actually destroy the birth cloud very, very quickly. This is what we get in high-mass protostars It's a really rapid process. For low-mass protostars, things like the Sun are smaller. This process is really slow. For the Sun, it takes 30 million years. Compare that to 10,000 years for the 30 solar-mass star. For a two-tenths of a solar-mass star, it could take almost a billion years for the process of growth, this Kelvin-Helmholtz time scale, to continue. A lot can happen in that billion years. Now, eventually, in these stars too, as it goes through the Kelvin-Helmholtz phase, the temperature in the core is slowly rising. It's producing pressure, but that pressure is not enough to counteract gravity. By the time it reaches 10 million degrees, however, it no longer can simply use gravitational energy. It can now begin to see fusion begin to kick in. As fusion kicks in, fusion takes up more and more and more of the energy load. As fusion kicks in, the core gets hotter. As it gets hotter, the fusion runs more rapidly, and eventually the star slowly settles down, burning hydrogen into helium through the proton-proton chain, settling onto the main sequence, as more of its energy needs are made up for by fusion, and it slowly achieves thermal equilibrium. So for a big star, the evolution is very quick. For smaller and smaller mass stars, it eventually reaches thermal equilibrium, but it takes a long time to do so. You settle very slowly onto the main sequence. So here's the goal, here's the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, as I told you it will be very important for talking about this. The main sequence here is shown in green. When a star is on the main sequence, it's in exact hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium, all of its energy coming from hydrogen fusion into helium. I'm gonna start with stars of 15, 5, 2, 1 and a half solar mass, and I'm gonna say, you're all gonna start your formation, you've all reached the protostar phase at the same time, go. Well, the 15 solar mass star just goes whipping across the diagram. Bam! 10,000 years, right on the main sequence. That half solar mass star kind of says, yeah, well, you know, I can do this Kelvin-Helmholtz thing for a while. I can do this thing for about a billion years. Oh, well, now I'm hot enough. OK, I'll make fusion. It's a very slow, stately process. It kind of meanders downwards. This is going to be important because I can look out into a place in the universe where stars are just now forming of all different masses and I can get an idea of how far along that process it is by saying which stars are on the main sequence now and which are still on their way there. O stars will reach the main sequence first, followed by B, A, F, G, K, and M stars. Lower mass stars reach the main sequence later than higher mass stars, even though they started at about the same time, at that cloud fragmentation started at the same time. Some have big fragments, some you have small fragments, it's a drawn-out process which carries some knowledge of its mass through this Kelvin-Helmholtz time scale. That'll be important to us when we go to observational tests of, of later. Now, as the core begins to heat up, more hydrogen is fused into helium. The core temperature and pressure rises, As you pump more heat in from fusion, the pressure begins to build faster than it does by gravitational compression. That build-up in pressure eventually rises to the point that the core contraction can stop completely. It shuts down the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism. Because I now can produce all the energy I need from nuclear fusion without having to tap my gravitational binding energy. So we achieve... Perfect pressure-gravity balance, and we achieve thermal equilibrium deep inside the star in the sense that hydrogen fusion energy generation is now exactly what I need to balance luminosity. Early in the phase, I'm making energy by fusion, but it's not enough. And so I'm making less energy than I'm able to, than I'm radiating away because my luminosity is fixed by how big I am and how hot I am. So what happens is we start out in the protostar phase, 100% Kelvin-Helmholtz, Continues on Kelvin-Helmholtz until my core temperature reaches 10 million. Fusion starts, and then all of a sudden, fusion begins to rise. Kelvin-Helmholtz begins to fall off as the internal pressure drops until I reach the point that I'm entirely tapping fusion. I meet all of my energy needs, and Kelvin-Helmholtz literally shuts down. At that point, I reach what's called the zero-age main sequence. I reach the point that I'm now a fully-fledged star I am in both hydrostatic equilibrium and in thermal equilibrium. And this is where the star, re- the sun reached about 4.6 billion years ago. Its protostar phase probably lasted about 30 million years. But once it ignited helium f- hydrogen fusion in the core, its internal structure began to modify, the contraction began to slow. When it made up enough energy from fusion to match a solar luminosity, it stopped moving and sat down on the zero age main sequence. It become a full-fledged star. We're going to talk about the main sequence tomorrow in detail, but this is the starting point. Now, out of this process of star formation, there are two natural scales that come into play. There is a minimum mass and a maximum mass for stars. The minimum mass is somewhere around 0.08 solar masses, about 8% the mass of our Sun, 8 one-hundredths. Below a mass of 8 one-hundredths the mass of the Sun, That core contraction continues by Kelvin-Helmholtz, but the core temperature, because the core temperature is determined in large measure by the weight of all the stuff on top of you, if you're a small star, you don't have much envelope. There's not much weight pushing down on you. So the temperature in your interior never rises above 10 million degrees Kelvin. If your temperature never gets above 10 million Kelvin, you never ignite hydrogen fusion. It never gets hot enough for you to do that. And so the consequence is, you're a failed star. You cannot achieve thermal equilibrium. You're in hydrostatic equilibrium at every instant. Pressure and gravity are doing their thing, but your energy losses are bigger than can be made up from gravity, so you slightly stay out of thermal equilibrium. As a consequence, you become an object known as a brown dwarf. Now, the reason why they're called brown dwarfs is they kind of resemble Jupiter in their outward appearance. They're kind of super Jupiters. We found these around hundreds of nearby stars. They get their energy by the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism because they're simply too cool in their centers to ever ignite hydrogen fusion. They're extremely rare. We know a few hundred of them right now because they're very faint. They're very, very hard to see, and they shine mostly in the infrared. Here's one of them. It's Gliese 229b. It's 0.05 m sun, sitting as a binary companion to actually, uh, this this is an m red dwarf. So this is a small, like, 0.2 solar mass or point, you know, 0.1 solar mass star, but this tiny companion here is super faint. It only shines by Kelvin Helmholtz. Yes, sir? If there was, like, a supernova explosion, would that drive enough energy to get a brown dwarf? No, because the energy's got to be in the interior, in the core. Right? It doesn't matter what your surface temperature is. It's your core temperature. The other thing that happens, it turns out why Jupiter can't form into a, into a brown dwarf, and, I'm sorry, a star, is because you can never press on Jupiter enough to make its temperature go up before the rules change on you, before that ideal gas law no longer holds the high densities. But that's a different story for a different day. So these are the T-dwarfs. These are the T-dwarf stars. The maximum mass that we can achieve is between 100 and 150 times the mass of the Sun. Maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower, it's hard to know where the line is. In this case, radiation pressure completely overcomes gravity and the star becomes unstable and blows itself apart before it even forms. So the outward pressure of radiation just from the protostar pushing on its surroundings begins to push away the raw material it could form out of, and the star will literally disrupt itself. Now the ultimate mass limit's not precisely known, but we think it's around 150 times the mass of the sun. If you lower the metal content, you might be able to push it higher, but such stars are extremely rare. There's probably only about three or four in the entire Milky Way galaxy. So what do we see? If the phase of existence is very long, we see lots of things in that phase. If it's very short, we see very few. This is one aspect of it. The pre-main sequence phase is much longer for lower-mass stars. As a consequence, most of the protostars we see are low-mass objects. The high-mass objects just evolve too rapidly to begin to see them. But the main sequence phase is very long, and we'll pick up the main sequence phase tomorrow. Okay, for those of you who haven't picked up your homework, they're available up here. Let me um, lay these out here. Actually, for me here.